Does everybody have page 13? So page 13 would be the last page of the handout from last week. And then there was a new handout starting with page 14. We'll go, we'll go through less pages tonight because I'm hoping to look at more Old Testament passages. So we'll move a little slower through the notes. All right, well, it's that, uh, it's that time, so let me just open in a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into our passage. Father, we're thankful that we have this privilege to uh, read and study the Word together. Uh, we're grateful for your Son. Uh, we want Him to be honored tonight as we discuss Him and think about His life and His work. I just pray that your Spirit would work through us in order to accomplish this purpose. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so tonight the goal is to look at chapter 2 of Matthew. So I start out there with a little quote from, from Dr. Compton, a longtime uh, professor at our seminary. Uh, he points to the fact that there's three themes that kind of weave together through Matthew 2. So the first one would be that there's this providential care of the Father. So we're at the top of page 13, right under point C. There's definitely going to be providential care of the Father for His Son. And as you think about the story in Matthew 2, I'm guessing most of us are pretty familiar with it. we got the coming of the Magi, and then Herod trying to kill the baby Jesus. It does remind us a little bit of an Old Testament story, and that's intentional. So I think Matthew intentionally wants us to think about Jesus as a, as a new Moses. He's the prophet like Moses that was promised in Deuteronomy 18. He's going to be the great deliverer who, like Moses, is going to rescue his people. So there's definitely this, this idea of God's sovereignty, his role in history, the fact that everything that takes place is underneath God's careful and wise eye and hand. But then there's also, and this is the part in bold, there's this theme of Gentile receptivity to the Christ in marked contrast to the overall response of the Jewish community. I feel like as I go through this class, I'm inevitably going to repeat myself at some time, so I hope you'll You'll uh, be patient with me. I'll forget things I've already said. So I may have already said this. But one way to think of the Gospel of Matthew is that there is this great sorting process going on. That there's ultimately just two families. There's the family that we were all born into naturally in this world. We were in Adam. We were born sinners. We were born in rebellion against God. And then there's this new family of people who are in Christ. Now, there's always been some of those family members all through the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul makes that really clear, right? Abraham, David, he can point to individuals. But it was always just a few. It was a scattered remnant. So much so that Elijah could say, I think I'm the only one left, right? I don't know any other believers. And, and God has to point out that there's, there's some out there. But now, with the coming of Jesus, this scattering is becoming a great, huge family. 
what I'm calling here the new community, what, what he's going to call the church or this assembly, this great family of people who are connected to the Messiah. And as this split takes place in Matthew, people who you think would be over here, you think they would be on the Messiah's side, part of Christ's family, because they're religious people or they're powerful people, they actually tend to be over here. And people that you thought were over here, unlikely people, sinful people, by God's grace, they're saved and they're transferred over into this new family. And you can see this, this split going on in this chapter, okay? Because we're going to have Gentiles, some unlikely people, who show up to worship the Jewish king, and then we're going to have the king of the Jews. It's interesting that there's only, there's only one person in this entire chapter who gets called king, and he gets called the king over and over again. But who is it in the chapter? It's Herod, right? That, that's irony, okay? Sometimes the New Testament writers use irony. So the irony is that the guy who gets called king, who claims to be king, is actually a usurper. He's an illegitimate king. And the true king, the one that everyone should recognize, I should put him over here, keep my two sides straight. The true king, the one whose family we should be belonging to, is actually the one that God has to sovereignly protect and preserve, all right? That's kind of the big overview. Let's, let's kind of dive into some of the details. So point one there underneath C. First of all, in this uh, first verse here, we've got these, these magi coming to see the Christ child. Let me make sure I know how to flip my slides here. It's going to be difficult. There we go. I'll associate that with the arrival of the king of the Jews. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us how they make that connection, right? One possibility, and I think this has some weight to it as we go through the rest of the chapter, is they're connecting it with Balaam's prophecy in Numbers chapter 24. Oops.
speak, he's, he's pronouncing these great prophecies. He pronounces blessings not only on Israel right then, but he also says, I'm seeing the distant future. I'm seeing way into the future, and I'm actually seeing things that God is going to do for these people, these Israelites. So this is one of the things that Balaam says in Numbers 24, 17 to 19. He says, I see him. So I think here he's talking about the Messiah, this coming king. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. We'll come back to Numbers 24 a little bit later, because I think there's another connection to this passage. But I think this is a very likely possibility for why these wise men see a star appear, some sign in the sky, and they know from their Old Testament scriptures that this means that this promised king is on its way. And evidently, Herod takes it the same way, because he does not dismiss this. He actually takes it as, as a threat. So point three there in the story, we're introduced to the man who's called Herod the king. Again, the only person who's called a king in the story, but we know he's an illegitimate king who actually attempts to trick these magi so that he can kill the young Jesus. So Herod the Great, he reigned from about the year 37 to 4 B.C., so he dies in 4 B.C., so Jesus must have been born shortly before that, around 5 B.C. or 6 B.C. So our B.C. calculations were just off slightly. That's what happened there. He's not even Jewish. He's half Jewish at best. He, he, he's known to us in history as being an Edomian. So he's a descendant of Edom. He's a descendant of Esau. So these were people who lived to the south of, of uh the land of Israel. So this map this ends up looking a little small up there. But we've got Judea here. There's Bethlehem. There's Jerusalem. You can always find Jerusalem because it's straight across from the top of the Dead Sea. you got Samaria in the middle where the Samaritans live. you got Galilee up here where Jesus is going to end up as a young boy. The ancient land of Edom got... Their, their name got butchered by Greek-speaking people, and instead of calling them Edomites, they started calling them Edomians. And this is the area that Herod and his family come from. So if you know your Old Testament, right, if you know that ancient strife between Jacob and Esau and all of the history that goes between those two families, this, again, is irony, right? We have an illegitimate usurper on the throne. He's an Edomite of all people. <coughs> And now he's actually going to try and kill the true king, who he now sees as a threat to himself. So he asks these chief priests and teachers of the law. So we're introduced to a couple of the, the key characters here in verse 4, who will become important as we go through the, the gospel account. So you've got priests who have authority, who live there in Jerusalem in charge of the, the temple service. You have men who, we call them teachers of the law, or sometimes we, we call them scribes. So by profession, their job was to preserve, originally to copy. I don't know how much copying the everyday guy was doing at this point. But definitely to preserve the, the scrolls, the Old Testament scriptures. 
but then they were looked on as experts because they were around them and they handled them and they were familiar with them. They became experts, the type of people that you'd want to, to go ask if you had a question from the Old Testament. So Herod asked, where is this king, where is this Messiah going to be born? And they quote for, for him from Micah 5.2. So point four, I think that demonstrates that at least some Jewish people in the first century they still believe that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So some of these passages that we're going to look at tonight, this isn't us as Christians just reading our Christian presuppositions back into the Old Testament. This is actually how people at that time would have read these passages. They would have understand that these were messianic, that these were talking about the chosen king that was on his way. So this is the, this, the whole paragraph from Micah 2, this is verses 2 through 4. It says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me. So this is God speaking. So there's someone coming out of this city that's going to be something for God, a servant for God. One who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. So we've got a messianic passage. We have this ruler who God is going to bring about for his own purposes, who's going to come from this small little city, Bethlehem, and when he rules, he's actually going to gather all of his brothers. So I, to me, this kind of reminds me of that brother statement that we looked at last week in Matthew 1. So he's going to have a large group of people who will come and join the Israelites. And he will stand and he will shepherd them. So I think the, the quotation there from Micah 5, it doesn't just tell us, oh, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, although it certainly does do that but also reminds us something about Jesus' role or the job that he's going to carry out. He's going to be a shepherd. And a shepherd in the Old Testament was a metaphor for their king. A king was a shepherd. It's actually a metaphor even in other countries. The, the pharaohs of Egypt were described as, as, as shepherds. But remember, their very first ruler, when God brought them out of Egypt and he brought them to Mount Sinai and he gave them their, their constitution, so to speak, the law of Moses, and they were constituted as a nation, their first ruler, Moses, was a literal shepherd, remember? When God found him, he was a shepherd in, in Midian. And then when Moses is getting ready to die, God tells him, I need you to choose somebody else to be a shepherd for my, my people. He chooses Joshua. Again, their greatest king is David, right? David is a literal shepherd. The prophets regularly refer to the fact that as the kings go away and they start having priests ruling over them after they return from Babylon, they have bad shepherds. They have wicked shepherds. So this idea that someday there would be a Messiah and he would shepherd his people Israel. So I say there at the very end of paragraph 4 in the notes, the Old Testament prophets frequently predicted that God at the time of the new exodus would also lead or shepherd through another mediatorial king from the line of David. 
Sometimes they actually would refer in the prophecies to David as if the king himself was named David. I don't think it's a, a resurrection of David to be a king. I think it's a reference to Jesus who will be from the family of David and who will be a better representation of what David should have been. Now, when I say there that there'll be a new exodus, is that term familiar? Is that a new term? So the idea there is that there was an original exodus. There was a historical exodus. It happened around the year 1440 B.C. It's, uh, you know, the old, the old movie with the, who's the guy, Ben-Hur guy? Charlton Heston, right? The crossing of the Red Sea, the, the plagues. We're, this is one of our favorite stories when we were kids in Sunday school, right? There's lots of action that takes place. This is essentially their 4th of July. This is their big event if you're a Jewish person. This is where they went from being slaves in Egypt to being redeemed from, by God and brought out and made into a country. But they've lost all of their privileges. They've lost the benefits of being underneath the, the, the covenant that God had made with them. They've actually come underneath the curses. So what they need is a second exodus. They need God to act one more time, to do it again, but now to do it in a greater way. Because they're not just in Egypt in bondage. They're not just in one place. They're scattered over the whole world. And they're persecuted by all kinds of different Gentile nations. So I'm going to just walk you through some Old Testament passages. So some of these are in that parentheses in the bottom of page 13. This is where we're going to slow down a little bit in the notes. Because I want to lay some, some foundation for some of the story that we're going to see in the rest of the gospel. All right? So will you bear with me if we just quickly go through some Old Testament passages together? Remember, this is, this is Holy Scripture, right? So if we go back to the very beginning, when they haven't even entered the promised land, in Deuteronomy 28, in Deuteronomy 28, they're on the plains there in Moab, and they're waiting to go into the promised land. And because only Moses and Joshua are left from the original group of people who came out of Egypt as far as adults, there's a second giving of the law. So 40, 40 years after they came out of Egypt, 40 years after they had been at Mount Sinai, there's a second giving. That's where we get the name Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means second law. A part of that second law, when we get to chapter 27, 28, remember, is the, that great scene where they're presented with blessings and cursings. Okay? The, the blessings are read from one mountain. The cursings are read from another mountain. God says, if you keep my covenant, this is what's going to happen to you. If you don't keep my covenant, this is what will happen to you. Again, these are new adults. These aren't their forefathers. Their forefathers have already dropped and died in the wilderness. These are everybody that was younger when they first came out of, out of Egypt. Well, this is one of the things that God says. So I'm going to read some of these passages here from Deuteronomy 28. And as we go through these, what I want you to see is that if I can use the term anti-exodus has taken place, there was an exodus that brought them out of Egypt. But when they disobey God and fall underneath the covenant curses, it's as if they go back. It's as if all of the bad things that happened to them or even the bad things that happened to the Egyptians are going to fall on their heads. Okay, Let's look at some of the language. It says, The Lord will cause you to be defeated. 
before your enemies. You will become a thing of horror to all kingdoms on earth. The Lord will afflict you with the boils of Egypt, see that, and with tumors, festering sores, and the itch from which you cannot be cured. I don't know what that is, but I don't want it, okay? Whatever, whatever that is, it does not sound good, all right? Let's go a little further. This is verses 58 through 60. God says very lovingly and firmly to his people, if you do not carefully follow all the words of this law, which are written in this book, and do not revere this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, the Lord will send fearful plagues on you. You see that? He'll send plagues on you and your descendants, harsh and prolonged diseases and severe and lingering illnesses. He will bring on you all the diseases of Egypt. You see that? That you dreaded. Excuse me, and they will cling to you. Let's go a few more verses, verses 63 through 68. It says, Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, so it will please him to ruin you and destroy you. You will be uprooted from the land you are entering to possess. So you see the, the progression? Come out of Egypt, prosper, grow, things going well for you, but your heart becomes proud. You're not really born again. You can't really follow my law, and so you fall underneath the covenant curses, and everything gets rolled back. It gets reversed. You become oppressed, and all of those terrible things that you saw happen to the Egyptians, those things will start happening to you. It says, Then the Lord will scatter you among all nations from one end of the earth to the other. The Lord will send you back in ships to Egypt on a journey I said you should never make again. So he says the same thing two different ways. The Lord will scatter you among all the nations. So you're not just going to go back to Egypt. You're going to be scattered everywhere, all kinds of different places. But then he says you'll go back in ships to Egypt, which is kind of a strange way of saying you're going to make a trip to Egypt. So if we remember our map, this is the map of the ancient Near East. So you see Jerusalem over there in green on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. Then you got Egypt as the big green country. That's a trip by land, right? You don't have to get in a ship to go from Palestine or the Promised Land to Egypt. So I think that's an initial clue, even at the very beginning in Deuteronomy 28, that, it, yeah, it's, some of you will go back to Egypt, and people don't, do go back to Egypt. Remember Jeremiah ends up in Egypt? There's people in Palestine who end up in Egypt during Jesus' day. But their problem is bigger than just Egypt. It's a worldwide problem. And it's still continuing today. That's what I would suggest, that the Jewish people today are still under the covenant curses. They find themselves scattered all over the world. And sadly, wherever they find themselves in the world, they are often the object of ridicule and hate. They still find themselves under the oppression of Gentiles. They themselves still refer to that. So Jewish people today will still refer to their predicament as the exile. They are still waiting for the exile to end. They're still waiting for God to rescue them. Okay, Let's go a little further. Deuteronomy 29, verses 22 through 23. He says, Your children will follow you in later generations, and foreigners who come from distant lands will see the calamities that have fallen on the land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it. The whole land will be a burning waste of salt and sulfur. Nothing planted, nothing sprouting, no vegetation growing on it. It will be like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, 
which the Lord overthrew in fierce anger. All right, so be honest. If we played Bible Jeopardy before we started, would anybody have known Adma and Zeboim? I probably wouldn't have either, right? So God's being very specific. There was actually four cities in Genesis that were destroyed with sulfur from heaven. We remember Sodom and Gomorrah, right? But there was also these two smaller ones, Adma and Zeboim. So here he's just being very specific. He's reminding them of what he did once to those pagan, awful Gentile cities. And he's saying, and I can also do that to my own people if they don't keep the law. All right? Then when you get to Deuteronomy chapter 30, and this is going to be a passage that we come back to often. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a fair point. So I'm just broadly, it's a term that they, many of them use. I think some of them just use it out of tradition. So that even if they're not a religious person, they would just refer to their plight in this world. The fact that they face anti-Semitism, the fact that they're not all back in Palestine, the fact that even those who are back in Israel, it's a relatively small country. So they would refer to that plight as exile. Some of them are even anti-Zionists. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But there's still a tradition that continues among many of them, not all, but many of them, that they would like to see themselves back in the Promised Land. But something a little bit bigger and more grand than what they currently possess. But yeah, when I say the Jewish people, that's a broad statement. So it doesn't mean every single Jewish person. Mm -hmm. So this is where it it all comes to a climax. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, after God has pronounced what would happen if they keep the covenant or what would happen if they break the covenant, God makes it very clear they will fall into this category. They will break the covenant. He's, He's been saying this to them since the book of Leviticus. They don't have the circumcised heart, which in the Old Testament is the metaphor for being born again. So what the Apostle John will one day call being born again, Moses calls having a circumcised heart. You have a heart. You have a heart within you that's hard. It needs God to reach in and perform surgery on it. You need to be changed from the inside so that you can be the people who would be loving and pleasing to God. So because they don't have that heart, all of the curses will fall upon them. But he says when they find themselves someday scattered throughout all of the nations, if they repent, if they turn, because God will change their heart, then this is what will happen. He says in verses 3 through 5, Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. So at the very beginning, in these passages that we've looked at in Deuteronomy 28 through 30, they were told that they would go through an anti-exodus, so they, everything that they had benefited from, from the Exodus, would be rolled back, taken away from them. But when they found themselves as slaves scattered throughout all of the world, if their hearts were changed and if they repented, then they would be rescued and gathered back. 
and it would be like a new exodus, okay? And the prophet Isaiah makes this very clear. So this is probably the most famous new exodus or second exodus passage. This is the passage that most people would go to, the passage that the idea actually comes from. So in Isaiah 11, 10 through 12, it's talking about the end times. So we would say this is the, the second coming now of Jesus. Of course, they wouldn't have said it that way, right? Because they didn't clearly see that he'd have two comings. But now we see it that way. So at the second coming of Jesus, it says, The root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time. Right? That's where I'm getting this language of second exodus or new exodus. So whatever God did in the first exodus, he's going to do it one more time. It's going to be a second time. But this one's going to be better. <laughs> this one's going to be more grand. All right. So to get ahead a little bit in the story, this is where I would think of like the plagues that we read about in the book of Revelation. People all over the world underneath a new pharaoh-like ruler who oppresses them God allows someone to reach the pinnacle of human government and power so that he can topple him in order to display his glory. And once again, he does that through plagues. Not ten, but three sets of seven. Okay, the book of Revelation. That's the second exodus, the second time. So he's going to reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people. And then look at all the places where they are. It's not just Egypt. He's going to get people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean, which in their world, that would have been people like us. That's how they would have described Europe, you know, the islands of the Mediterranean. All the way down into Africa, Cush and Hamath are both people from Africa. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. We could go on. We could read many of these passages. Isaiah 11 actually talks about the drying up of the water, just like the first Exodus. Ezekiel 37 talks about the servant David who will be king over them. Again, it uses the shepherd language. But in all of these passages, the common theme is that there's going to be a shepherd, a ruler. He's going to be a descendant of David. And he's going to gather his, his scattered people, his, his lost sheep. And he's going to bring them back to their homeland. And it will be a much greater and grander exodus. That's all of the stuff. That's a lot, right? That's all of the stuff that's behind Micah 5.2 when it says that there's going to be a ruler who's born in Bethlehem who will shepherd his people. And because they already had all of these passages that connected the Messiah with the Exodus, and they had a prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 that said that someday God would raise up a prophet like Moses, they're expecting this Messiah, if he's the real deal, then he's going to have a lot of Moses connections. He should have many things in his life that are like Moses. And Matthew is going to go to great pains to connect those dots. And one of the first stories is that he is born under a king who's killing Jewish boys in order to wipe one out, which reminds us of how Moses was born in the first place. All right? I'll stop there for a second. Any, any questions about that? Any questions so far? All right. I see, I see this new Exodus theme 
as important all the way through the gospel. So we'll come back to it at several points. But from the get-go, I just wanted to lay the foundation by showing you some Old Testament passages that describe it. Most people who talk about it, if you find it in other books, they usually talk about it as something that Jesus has already accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. So they would see it as kind of a done deal. When I use the expression, I'm trying to use it, in my opinion, more faithfully to what the Old Testament scriptures predict. And I would place it as something that Jesus will accomplish at his second coming. So Moses, or I'm sorry, Matthew isn't saying Jesus has done it yet. Matthew is just saying Jesus is the guy who will do it. And as we've said before, Jesus still has much on his plate left to do because Jesus' days continue. He's still alive. His, his career has not finished. It never will. All right, so when the Magi find the home in Bethlehem, this is point five, where Mary and Joseph are living, they worship him. They present him with gifts fit for a king. I think here this is just Matthew's way of reminding us that he truly was a king of Israel. He deserved gifts, and he's receiving gifts here from Gentiles, from unlikely people. You know, those, those chief priests and those uh, teachers of law, they, re- they heard about this evidently, right? But there's nothing in the story about them going to worship the Christ child, is there? It's these, it's these magis, these magicians who show up. There's going to be this theme running all through Matthew that some of the people who belong over here in this new family that God is creating that's attached to Christ, they're largely going to be Gentiles, right? And there's a little foretaste of this right off the bat with these, the magi that come and bring tribute. I think it reminds us of Old Testament passages like this one that talk about nations coming to Israel's light, people bringing treasure. In the middle of that passage, it talks about people coming with camels from far-off places in Persia, um, modern-day Iran, bringing gold and incense. That's two of the gifts, right, that the Magi bring, proclaiming the praises of the Lord. So again, this, I think this is a prophecy of Jesus' second coming. We're, we're already seeing a foretaste or a preview in his first coming. All right, so that's the first section. I think in the first section, the story of, of the Magi and Herod, you're supposed to make a contrast between these two kings, the illegitimate one and the true one. Realize that this one over here, for the most part, he's accepted by the Jewish people. There doesn't seem to be main, a big opposition to his rule. He's actually friendly with the chief priests. He's friendly with the experts in the law. Over here, we have these magi who seem like kind of shady characters from what we know about them in the Old Testament, and they show up and they actually give the king true worship. This next section that we're going to look at, verses 13 through 20, I think it demonstrates God's protection of his anointed one from dangers of these, of these two illegitimate kings. But it's also highlighted by three Old Testament references that are very challenging to interpret. So one of the things that we're trying to do in this class is show some of these areas in Matthew where there's a little bit of debate and present some options for you and then argue for a particular interpretation. So this angel of the Lord, he shows up there, paragraph one. He warns Joseph to flee to Egypt to escape Herod. And when Joseph goes to Egypt with his family, and I think that's key, 
where Matthew places it. So Matthew places this quotation not when they come back from Egypt. He places it when they go to Egypt. So we'll think about that for a second. But this is what it says. So, so in uh, verse 14, Joseph got up. He took the child and his mother during the night, and he left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And there in the part in quotation marks, he's quoting from Hosea 11.1. 1. It's a difficult, challenging passage. Why is it challenging? Well, anytime the New Testament writers quote or cite an Old Testament passage, I think it's always a good thing in our Bible study to go back and see what passage they're quoting. I think it's just a, a general rule when we write that if we have small snippets of a familiar passage and we quote them, we intend for a larger story to come to the mind of our hearer. So, for example, if I, if I stood up here and I said, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? That's a familiar phrase that has a, a big story to it. Or if you're the other half of the room, maybe it's, you know, to boldly go where no man has gone before. There's usually both sides in every room, right? Both, both favorite stories. So that little snippet of a familiar story, just a sentence or two, it brings to mind a whole host of characters, a whole host of plot twists. You have a whole story that you associate with that. The same thing happens when the New Testament writers cite the Old Testament. They expect you not just to know that piece that they're citing, they expect you to know the whole context around it. But the challenging thing is when you go to Hosea 11 and you read it, on a first reading, a first glance, it doesn't seem to be talking about anything that has to do with Jesus' coming, first or second coming. It seems to be a reference at first glance to the historical exodus, the one that happened under Moses in 1445 B.C., so one possibility that's argued then, well, Jesus here, he's not fulfilling this prophecy in the, in the sense that Hosea 11 predicted something about it, and now he's checking the box. So it would be different than like Micah 5.2 or Isaiah 7 that said he was born a virgin. One possibility is that they would argue that there's a, an analogy going on. So I have here in, on point B, the arguments for that. Some people would just say, you know, an analogy has some things in common, but by definition, an analogy doesn't have everything in common. So if something has an analogical relationship, it's not the same as being identical. And if you think about this, you could make some points of contact between the original Exodus that maybe Hosea 11 is talking about in the life of Jesus. So this would be three of them. So Israel went into Egypt to be cared for by God. Now the Messiah is doing the same. Israel came out of Egypt to return to the promised land. Now the Messiah is doing the same. Israel was called God's son. The Messiah is certainly called God's son. So that's, that's one possibility. But I think actually a better argument, so this is point D at the bottom of the page, a better argument can be made that Hosea 11 contains a reference to both the original Exodus and the new Exodus, the regathering of the people of Israel from their exile by the Messiah. So let me go ahead, just a couple slides here. Let's look at Hosea chapter 8. So remember, our quotation is from Hosea 11, that point 1 there, a little Roman numeral 1 at the bottom of the page. 
I think when you get to Hosea 11 and you look at verses 5 through 12, I think this describes a future regathering from multiple countries. So what does that sound like? A future regathering from multiple countries. That looks like all of those new Exodus passages that we already looked at. It seems like if you go back and read Hosea 11 carefully, he's not talking about the original Exodus. He's talking about the future one that will take place at Jesus' second coming. One reason I say that is because earlier in the prophecy, when you were in chapter 8, he mentions the fact that the people will return to Egypt. All right. So here in this passage, he refers to their sin of idolatry. He's specifically addressing the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes as the focus of Hosea's ministry. And he said, look, you guys are going to go back to Egypt, which I think here Egypt means Egypt plus. <laughs> it means Egypt and all of the other places where they'll end up in exile. But when you get to Hosea 11 itself, I think there's clues that the prophet is thinking of earlier prophecies. This is an interesting thing to think about. I don't know if we think about this enough, but when an Old Testament writer is writing, he's read earlier portions of the Old Testament. There's hundreds and hundreds of years that separate these Old Testament books. So that by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, especially the, what we call the minor prophets or the, the 12 prophets, they've had the books of Moses, they've had the Psalms, they've had lots of this literature, and it's been treasured, and it's been memorized, and they've listened to it. And I'm assuming here that the men who wrote Scripture are all believers who, who had a vested interest in studying and meditating Scripture. And when they write, they drop little hints little allusions, just like I did with Star Wars and Star Trek, they do that with older Old Testament books. And here's one of them. So Hosea is talking about, I'm arguing, the second Exodus. And look what he references. He says, "How this is God speaking. It's God speaking, but it's Hosea recording God's words for us. And it says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma?" How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man. Isn't that a great statement? You know, if your children had acted that way towards you, the way the people of Israel acted towards God, we wouldn't have been as patient with them, right? We're not as patient with rebels that we meet in our life. People who scorn us the effect that the people of Israel scorn their God. But God reminds us, I'm not like you. <laughs> I'm not a man. I'm God. And I made these people a promise, a promise that I can't leave them like Adma and Zeboim. Where does he get that from? Well, the only other place in the entire Old Testament outside of Genesis where the story first takes place were those two obscure little cities that before tonight we maybe had never thought of before. The only other time they show up in the Old Testament is in Deuteronomy 28, that passage I showed you earlier. So just by dropping those little hints into the text, I'm suggesting that Hosea 11 wants you to go back and read Deuteronomy 28. He expects you to know it. And if you don't know it, he wants you to go back and read it. Because he wants you to read his story through the lens of that older story and realize that it's actually one story that God has been telling for thousands of years about what he will do for his people. We'll go down a little bit further. There's another 
link here. So this is, these are the very next two verses. So again, we're in Hosea 11. This is the passage that Matthew quotes, but he quotes from verse 1. We're just going a little further down the chapter, and we're seeing everything that Hosea 11 talks about. So this is something you, you can check out, you can look later. But he's saying about the people of Israel, they will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the east. They will come from Egypt. Okay, So this isn't talking about them coming out of Egypt the first time. This is about them. They will come. This is something that they will do in the future. They will come trembling like sparrows from Assyria. So remember, this is Egypt plus. This is Egypt and other countries. So also now Assyria. Fluttering like doves, I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. All right? One other clue, though. So notice here that this, this person who roars like a lion, who also is called the Lord himself, He's the one who's going to do all of this. But why a lion? Why specifically? I think there's two passages that are in play. Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob makes the prophecy about his children, he connects Judah with a lion. But also this prophecy. So we go back to to Balaam in Numbers chapter 24. We've now come full circle back to the passage we started with. So remember in in Numbers 24... It was the passage about the star, right? The star that would come up out of Judah. The, probably the passage that got those magi thinking they need to make their trip. Just a few lines earlier, the passage reads, His king. So remember, this is Balaam talking about Israel. So this would be Israel's king. Israel's king will be greater than Agag. So a great king from their day. But this king that he can see in the distant future is far greater. And his kingdom will be exalted. God brought him out of Egypt. So again, this this king, who I'm saying is the Messiah, Jesus, he has to come out of Egypt, just like his people have to come out of Egypt. He's going to share in their exile. He's going to be born into exile so that he can save them from the exile. He is like the horns of a wild ox for them. He will feed on enemy nations and gnaw their bones He will strike them with his arrow. He crouches. He lies down like a lion or a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? Those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. So I I think that if you think of the chain of events, you've got Jacob's prophecy to his sons, Genesis 49. You've got the people going through the, the trip to Palestine and meeting Balaam, his prophecies in Numbers 24. You've got the prophecies that Moses gives on the plains of Midian, right before they go into the promised land, Deuteronomy 28 through 30, and then the song that he gives in chapter 32. And then you've got the prophecies that are given much later to those minor prophets, Hosea, Micah, before them, Isaiah. And all of them together, I think, are telling the same story about this king who is going to be born to rescue his people from this great predicament that they find himself. And Matthew wants you to put a great big arrow over Jesus' head and say, he's the guy. He is the man. He is the one that we've been waiting for our entire lives. And even these strange details that are happening to him as a child, those actually point to the fact that he is the fulfillment of of these prophecies. I'll stop, I'll stop there for a second. That's, 
That's the first of three that are challenging. If we don't get through all three tonight, that's fine. We'll just pick up next week. But any questions there about the first one? So I don't think it's just an analogy. I don't think it's just typology, even though good men make those arguments. I think a better argument is that actually the original passage itself was a prophecy about the new exodus. And the reason why Matthew quotes it where he quotes it is that he doesn't find it as significant that Jesus and his family later come out of Egypt. What he really finds significant is that they had to go to Egypt in the first place. Just think about that for a second. That's really what's significant in the story, that the true king was born into this world and he had to scurry off with his family to Egypt in order to be rescued from the hands of an Edomite who's on the throne. And just the fact that he has to do that illustrates that the exile continues, that the people still need to be saved from their sins. So before Matthew gets to the solution, the gospel, the good news, he's reminding us of the bad news, the predicament that this world finds in. And just in case you think, well, you're reading somebody else's mail here, you know, what's this have to do with me? Our eternal destiny is tied up with the people of Israel as well. Because when they are rescued, when they are restored, we who have been united to their king will share in their exaltation. And we'll be like those people that Isaiah prophesied about who come from distant lands to the light of Israel. All right, I think that's the point of the Hosea 11 citation. All right, let's tackle the second one then. I'll pause one more time. They always say teachers don't give enough time for questions, so nobody's jumping up. Okay, let's flip the page then. So page 15, point two. So we're pretty familiar with the story, I think. So Herod, he realizes that he's been tricked by the Magi. Remember, they, they, they scurry off and don't tell him where the child is exactly. But he knows that he's in Bethlehem. Evidently, he thinks baby based on when they first saw the star, that the child might be as old as two years old, verse 16, excuse me. So he decides to kill all of the baby boys two years old and younger. So this story looks very much like the, the Moses story, doesn't it? And just so, as a little aside, in their day, they told the Moses story with some embellishments. So the Jewish historian Josephus, he tells the story of Moses, but when he tells it, it's a little bit bigger than the story in Exodus. And one of the details that Josephus tells is that Pharaoh kills the Jewish boys because he's heard a prophecy about a king who's going to be born, who's going to take his place. Now, Josephus could be wrong. We don't know for sure that that's really what Pharaoh was motivated by because the Bible doesn't tell us. And if the Bible doesn't tell us, we can't be sure, right? But the point is, is if people in Matthew's day were used to the story being told that way, they would make the connection between Moses and Jesus even more clear than you and I would. You see how that works? If they're used to the story being told that way, this connection would have just jumped off the page for them. And they would have realized, oh, this man Jesus that you're talking about, he looks a lot like Moses. There's many parallels between the two. So then Herod, he tries to destroy the family. And uh, when this takes place, when these 
boys sadly die. It's not a, it's not a large town, but you're still probably talking about dozens of children. This is what, this is what Matthew says. It says, that Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So here he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31. So again, what do we do when we're studying the New Testament and they quote from the Old Testament? We, we go look up the passage, right? So we go, we look up Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, it is talking about the deportation to Babylon, which has already been part of Matthew's story, right? One of those key things that he focused on in the genealogy. So Ramah was a little village just north of Jerusalem. So again, here's Jerusalem parallel with the Dead Sea. This is pretty zoomed in. Ramah is only five miles, which in their day was further than in our day, but still, it's five miles outside. Jerusalem is up on the hills. When foreign invaders attack Jerusalem, they always come from the north. When, they, when the Babylonians took the city, when they started gathering young men to go back, Ramah was their, their deportation center. It's where they would have had pens or stockades with young boys being herded together for that final trip back to Babylon. With, I'm sure, literal mothers, right? Literal mothers crying for them. But Jeremiah uses poetic language because in that general area is also where Rachel was buried. Rachel was uh, the favorite wife of Jacob. So even though all 12 tribes aren't her tribes, she gets associated with being the mother of all of them because she was the favorite wife. So the picture is that Rachel, who's buried close by, is weeping for her children these young boys who are getting ready to make that trip back to, to Babylon, a trip from which they likely, their loved ones, think they'll never return from. All right? So why does he quote that passage? Well, again, one possibility is that there's just an analogy taking place. So the analogy would work this way. So in 586, in Jeremiah's day, there were, there were tears shed for children. And the same thing now is happening in Bethlehem. Or there was suffering caused by a foreign king. So in Jeremiah's day, it would have been Nebuchadnezzar. In Bethlehem, it was, it was Herod. So that would be a connection. The third one would be there's going to be deliverance brought by, by God's king, the Messiah. So that's a possibility. But I actually think, by now I'm, I'm starting to sound like a broken record, right? I actually think that this passage, again, Matthew has deliberately quoted it. Remember, there's nothing, like Matthew's not recording like details that are taking place as like an eyewitness at this point. When he puts in these citations, these, these little comments, these are editorial comments. This is Matthew now as an old man, 30-some years after the events have taken place, and he's thinking back and he's meditating on what he knows about Jesus and what Jesus accomplished, and he's finding passages from the Old Testament that he wants to quote and the whole time being led by the Holy Spirit so that what he does is accurate. That's how it's working. So why this passage? Well, if you go look at the passage in Jeremiah 31, you start in verses 10 through 11. Uh, here it says, Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. 
He who scattered Israel will gather them, and he will watch over his flock like a shepherd. So there's the gathering of the scattered people. There's the shepherd language. Okay, we've seen a lot of that so far. For the Lord will deliver Jacob, and he will redeem them from the hands of those stronger than they. All right, then that's verses 10 through 11. So for time, we'll just skip down to verses 15 through 17. This is the part Matthew quotes. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. So Matthew wants you not just to think about the one little part that he cited. He cites the very beginning, right? He wants you to also remember this whole thing. He doesn't minimize the tears. Remember, I'm sure there were many Jewish people in the first century who would have said, I don't really mind having Herod as a king. I don't really mind having the Romans as overlords. Remember, there was this whole group of people we talked about last week that called them, or they were called the sinners because they didn't have any interest in keeping the law of Moses. There's people today, right, who just think, well, this world isn't really that bad, right? This world isn't really that bad. We don't really need a savior, right? We can just improve ourselves. We can just become better educated. We can just have better opportunities. And sometimes things happen in current events to shake our trust in humanity, so to speak, and to remind us that we do live in a broken and fallen world. And I think one of the greatest instances of that is anytime we see tragedies happen to children, right? Even unbelievers, that shakes them, right? There's something in their conscience that knows this isn't right. And I think Matthew is doing that with the story of what happened in Jesus' early days. He's reminding them, okay, Jesus was the the one who was born into exile. And in just in case you have any doubts of the fact that there was an exile that you need to be saved from, remember what happened at Jesus' birth. This little tiny village in Bethlehem, the hometown of David of all places, had an Idumean as a king who came in and slaughtered some of your infants. So that the tears, the tears that were shed by those women in 586 B.C., they still continue. They're still being shed. And I would suggest that they're still being shed today. Those tears haven't ended. It, it hasn't been that long ago that we had young Jewish boys and girls in pens waiting to be deported, right? That type of stuff has still happened in recent memory. And I'm suggesting that it will continue and sadly actually even escalate at the very end until Jesus puts an end to it, because he will put an end to it. That's part of what it means that he will save his people from their sins. That's part of Matthew's story, all right? That's the first two. When we come back next week, we'll, we'll tackle the last one. Any, any final questions? I'm right up to the wire. Let me get my money's worth. All right. Thank you all. I'll see you next week, Lord willing.